Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in a place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in, the, in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of, the, of God, and this is a gate to heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the, pla- the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, I will, I, if God will be with me, I will keep, I will keep me in the way that I go and I will give and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone where I've set up as, as a pillar shall the God's house and of all that you give me, I will give a full 10th to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade. We good. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. (laughs) Good morning. Um, If you have a Bible, if you will turn to Genesis 28, if you're not already there and encourage you to follow along and look at the scripture as we um, talk our way through it. And hear God's word um, as is taught to us <clears throat> from the pulpit. Our passage this morning, as Josh read for us, is Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Uh, before we get started, though, will you pray with me? Uh, Father, just as Kevin reminded us this morning, we come here, um, God, not asking you to come and worship and meet with us, God, but we come as those who have been invited to a table you have already set. We ask that we would during this time that your word is brought forth or that you would speak clearly to us or that you would change us and transform us more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, God, that we come to you, um, Lord, in terms of peace and on terms of peace, on the foundation of Christ's body and Christ's blood poured out and spilt for us. Um, We ask that this time would be to our joy and to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning's text marks a transition in the Genesis narrative. Um, so, so far, uh, starting with, you know, in January of the start of the year, we looked at Genesis chapter 25, and we've been looking mainly at the life and legacy of Isaac and uh, as, at his family as a whole. And the setting has largely been in the home. But starting here in Genesis 28.10, our attention turns to Jacob alone, and the setting shifts from inside the home 
uh, to outside of it, to somewhere in the desert between Beersheba and Haran. Now, uh, if you remember, Jacob's Genesis in the book of Genesis started in chapter 25 with the birth of him and his twin brother Esau. God said this to Rebekah, their mother, in Genesis 25-23. You can turn there if you want to. It's probably a page or two to the left, but you don't have to. He said this, God said this to Rebekah. He said, two nations and two peoples are in your womb. So she's having twins. That's not super cryptic there. And remember, Rebekah was originally barren, but just as God opened the womb of Abraham's wife, Sarah, so too God opened the womb of Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And so God has more than overcome Rebekah's natural infertility to continue his covenant through the line of Abraham. But that doesn't mean it will be smooth sailing from here because... God said these two brothers will be divided. They'll be rivals, if you will. And the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So God is flipping the script from kind of the cultural norms of the day. And so Esau comes out first. He's basically a yak. And right behind him, grabbing... I'm serious. Like, I read that and I'm like, I have... I haven't witnessed a lot of births, but I just, that's hard to wrap my mind around. It's a hairy dude. Uh, And right behind him, grabbing onto his heel is Jacob, right? Whose name means heel holder or cheater or my favorites in just great vocab words, the usurper and the supplanter, which makes you wonder which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Was Jacob deceptive because he was named the deceiver and simply kind of lived into that name? Or was that his character from the beginning? And unfortunately, his name happened to vocalize it. Honestly, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't answer that question for us. But just some parental advice. I would suggest if you don't want your kid to be evil, I wouldn't name him Satan. Wouldn't roll the dice there, right? But either way, Jacob's name isn't just a name for Jacob. It's his identity. It's who he was. He was the cheater, the grasper, the usurper, and the supplanter. And as we've witnessed over the past several weeks, Jacob has obtained his brother's birthright, and his blessing. And he's done it by conning and cunning both his brother and his father, all while being played by his less-than-altruistic mother. And so Genesis 28 opens with Jacob having burnt all of his relational bridges but one, and that's this very dysfunctional relationship with his mom. And at this point in the story, not even his mom thinks she can spare Jacob from Esau's wrath. And she, she, so she, again, being the manipulator in the story, gets Isaac, the dad, to send Jacob to Haran to obtain a wife, which brings us to the doorstep of Genesis 28.10. Now, there are three major divisions in this text that I see. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Uh, one would be Jacob's humble reality. Jacob's humble reality. Two is God's abundant grace. God's abundant grace. And lastly, we'll look at Jacob's measured response. Jacob's measured response. So first, Jacob's humble reality. Look with me once again at verses 10 and 11. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now remember, Jacob here is literally in the middle of the desert. He is somewhere between Beersheba and Haran, which is separated by some 550 miles. And there is no pilot. There's no Circle K. There's no GPS to locate him or OnStar to rescue him. Jacob is a man in exile. He is fleeing from his home. He is fighting for his life. And he is far removed from the comforts he has come to know and love. 
And you may have noticed in these two verses, the word place there is mentioned three different times. It says Jacob came to a certain place and then he took one of the stones of that place and he lay down to sleep in that place. And the reason for the author's repetition of phrase there is because Jacob uh, really is in a place where nobody knows, right? There is no established town. There's no well with a name uh, to go to it. There is no road mark or landmark to distinguish where Jacob is. It is just a place. And it's a place that Jacob was. And the sun is setting. And so Jacob has to press pause on his journey and try and get some sleep. And to put an exclamation on, on, on the, just how desperate the circumstances are for Jacob at this point, he takes a rock and he uses it as a pillow. Now you may be wondering, why would anybody use a rock for a pillow? That's a good question. And the only reason that I and commentators that I read could come up, could come up with is that Jacob literally had nothing else to use. Right? As one commentator said, Jacob had literally hit rock bottom. <laughs> and so as verse 11 closes, Jacob's physical reality paints a stark picture of his life as a whole at this point. Jacob is isolated, he's alone, and he is altogether in the dark. Because the trajectory that Jacob's life was on, the true north that was driving both his actions and his affections has suddenly disappeared from the landscape of his mental imagination. And so Jacob is left scrambling simply to stay alive, which means that the birthright and the blessing Jacob had worked so hard to acquire are essentially useless to him now, right? And all because Jacob refused to receive God's promises, and instead he insisted on taking them for himself. And so Jacob is left to languish in the desert without them rather than enjoy them to the full in God's appointed time and in God's appointed way. This is Jacob's humble reality, and it's the reality for all who choose the way of grasping and usurping instead of trusting and receiving. As Jesus would later say in the Gospels, what good is it to gain the whole world if you forfeit your very soul? And I would add your character with it. And this is the road that Jacob was on. And yet, even in this very dark place, even in Jacob's humiliation, we see no signs that Jacob is crying out to God. There's not even an indication that Jacob is aware of God at this point in the story. He has nothing to say. He's just kind of a victim of his circumstances. Jacob in his life had reached up and out for many things, but God here isn't one of them. And yet in Jacob's darkness and his nothingness, God comes to Jacob and he does so through a dream. It's kind of as if God saw that reality alone wasn't enough to wake Jacob up and get his attention. And so God comes to Jacob in the realm of the unconscious, slipping past the walls of his conscious defenses. Look with me again at verses 12-15 as we witness God's abundant grace towards Jacob. Starting in verse 12, it says this, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on the top, uh, and the top of it reached the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promise to you. So all this occurred in a dream for Jacob. That's true. But we have to realize that this is not fantasy. Rather, this is God removing this paper-thin wall that separates the physical reality we can see 
from the spiritual reality we can't see. As one commentator put it, this is God giving Jacob a glance into the control room of heaven. And more than that, this is God waking Jacob up to reality in its ultimate sense. And we need to realize here that the glimpse that Jacob gets into the uh, spiritual world at work is actually happening all of the time. And it's happening around us as well each and every day. As poet Elizabeth Barrett Brown put it, she says that earth is crammed with heaven. And Thomas Merton, the Catholic writer and priest, he had this takeaway from his text. He says, or from this text, excuse me. He said, in this text, God is inviting us to share the same awareness that Jacob has, to wake up and see that God is active in every part of our lives, including our failures, disappointments, betrayals, misunderstandings, and shattered dreams. God is present in our marriage or our singleness, our anger and our anxieties. We live, Merton said, in a God-soaked world, and His love letters to us are everywhere. But all too often, he concluded, our spiritual eyes are clouded by fear, stress, and hurry, and so tragically, we miss them. If Genesis 28 tells us anything, it tells us God's presence isn't something we walk into on a Sunday morning or we call down from heaven. It is something we stand in moment by moment as we live in the reality of the kingdom of God. Now with that said, let's look a little bit closer into Jacob's dream uh, that we see here in the text. So first up is this ladder. right? Jacob sees this ladder. It's going up and down. It's ascending uh, to heaven and it's descending down to earth. Now a better translation for ladder here would actually be the word staircase. And this is a grand staircase at that, the likes of which Jacob probably has no context or category. And on this staircase, Jacob sees these angels, right? They're ascending and descending. They're going up and down this staircase. As one commentator said, these are the heavenly workers coming on and off their shift to carry out God's will in the world. And then we see God Himself in Jacob's dream. Now your translation may say, I think the ESV that was on the screen said, the Lord stood above it, um, as in above the ladder or above the staircase. Another way to translate that would be, and perhaps a better way, is to say the Lord stood beside it which places God not up in the heavens above the staircase and aloof from Jacob and afar from him, but it places him with Jacob on the ground. I think this is an accurate depiction. I think it, I think it conveys the idea better, perhaps, than the Lord stood above it, because uh, Jacob's response in verse 16 is this. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, as in the place where Jacob lay. Now, Jacob could have very well said that the Lord is in this place, even if God were above the ladder, because of the divine activity around him. But we know that the gospel itself isn't a message of God calling us to come up to him and ascend our way to the heavens. It is rather God stooping down to be with us, his creation, kneeling low, humbling himself and getting his hands dirty with us. God is not a puppeteer pulling our strings in the heavens. He is a very relational God who gets involved with his creation, even at great cost to himself. Which leads us to our last observation about this staircase, and that's this phrase, its top reached the heavens. You may see that there about the staircase with its top reaching the heavens. So this is a phrase that is meant to draw your mind or the reader's mind, or in a, you know, ancient Old Testament culture, the listener's mind, to Genesis 11 and the account of the Tower of Babel. So if you go back to Genesis 11, you can if you want to. It's a few pages to the left. You will see... And in Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel, that man was wanting to span this gap that sin had created, right? And their goal was to close this gap and to be with God and to be like God. And it says this in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. 
says they wanted to build a city and a tower with its top reaching the heavens. And so God sees this and he immediately shuts it down. But man's ambition here, his aim in building this tower, reveals two things about us. First, it shows us the depths of pride lurking in the human heart. And second, it's man's own acknowledgement of his sinful state. For man to build a tower, there has to be a tower to be built. There has to be a gap to be spanned, a, a distance to be closed, right? And so what God does in the negative in Genesis chapter 11, God is doing here in the positive in Genesis chapter 28. Meaning that this is God showing us that the only way to bridge this gap, this sin created, is not by man ascending up to God, but rather God descending down to man. This is the gospel in Genesis 28, and it's why... If we fast forward to the New Testament, to John chapter 1 that Josh read for us earlier, we see Jesus connecting the dots between Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis and Jesus' own coming and calling in the Gospel of John. So in John 1, again as Josh read, Jesus calls Nathaniel. He's under this fig tree. And Nate's impressed that Jesus knows who he was. You saw me? Like you know who I am? I didn't tell you that? You are amazing, right? He, he, he is appalled at what Jesus does. He thinks that's impressive. And Jesus basically said that is nothing compared to what's coming. And Jesus says this again in John 1.51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is Jesus' way of saying, I'm the ladder. I'm the staircase. I am the bridge to span the gap that sin created. I am the way back into God's presence and back to peace, to real, true shalom that you were created for and that you have destroyed. And ever since you have been trying to get back to, I am the way and the truth and the life, as Jesus himself would say. God is so good and he is so gracious and that we could not climb up to him. God comes down to us and he does that through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So that is the significance of this ladder, Jacob's ladder, or you could say God's ladder revealed to Jacob. Now let's look at what God himself says to Jacob in this dream. So God comes to Jacob here, and he introduces himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And this is God introducing himself to Jacob in a way Jacob can relate to. And this is where God goes from being just a God that Jacob knows about to a God that Jacob knows this is God establishing His covenant with Jacob, and He does so by addressing Jacob's specific needs. Now let me step outside the storyline for just a second here to say, this is how God comes to all of us, is it not? It is in our places of pain and shame that God sees us, He meets us, He heals us, and He redeems us. So, a couple examples. God calls Moses with his super checkered past, like you think you don't deserve to be a Christian. Moses was a murderer. Top that, right? He was a murderer. He's got this super checker past. He's got this terrible stuttering tongue. And God calls him to be the mouthpiece for a nation. For the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, Jesus sees her in her sin. And instead of casting a stone like the Pharisees or turning the cheek and pretending it didn't happen, Jesus levels the playing field with her and her accusers. And then he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And to the woman at the well who had had five husbands, and before it was cool, she was having a friend with benefits, Jesus chose to go through Samaria and rather than to avoid it. And when he meets this woman at the well, he reaches straight for her source of shame and hiding, and he offers himself as a source of healing and life. Where we most want to cover ourselves up with fig leaves of our own making, God most wants to expose us with his grace 
and heal us with his love. That's what God was doing with Jacob in our text, and it's what he does with us today. And so first, God addresses Jacob's loneliness, or you could say his isolation. And to that, God says, I will be with you. And more than that, God says, I won't leave you until I've done everything I've promised to you. Everything I say to you, I'll be with you the entire time until I fulfill every promise that I've made. When Jacob had ruined every relationship he had, God says, I'm still here and I'm not going anywhere. Next, God addresses excuse me, Jacob's safety. Jacob's safety. So he has kind of two concerns when it comes to his safety. First, he has a mark on his head from Esau. Let's not forget about that. Significant. And second, Jacob is alone in the desert. And again, he is attempting to span some 550 miles of Middle Eastern desert with really nothing to use as protection. He has no transportation. And so realistically speaking, Jacob is a dead man walking. And yet God says, I will watch over you wherever you go. And God even promises to bring Jacob back to the land he is currently lying on, which means Jacob will not only make it to his destination, but he'll also make it back to his current location, which means Jacob one day will journey back home. Probably a thought he couldn't entertain at the moment. Lastly, God addresses Jacob's legacy. So Jacob at this point is without a family. He has no spouse, no children, no possessions to his name, and he really has no ability to change any of that. And yet God promises to bless Jacob, to give him descendants like the dust of the earth and land that stretches in every direction. And he says that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Jacob and his line. And this promise here gets at both God's purpose for humanity and the heartbeat of human existence. So God's original covenant with Abraham was established, yes, for the purpose of blessing Abraham, but more than that, for the purpose of blessing the world through Abraham. And God still does this today through His bride, the church. The church, including this one, CTK, is called to be an outpost of heaven positioned here on earth. It is to be a representation of the new Jerusalem in a fallen Babylon. Uh, you may have heard the quote. I, I know I've probably said it up here. I know Kevin probably has as well. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, he rightly said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that is true. But I think that's part of the Christian equation, if you will. When Christ calls a man, uh, he does bid him come and die. But I think when Christ or God calls a man, he also bids him go and bless. We are called to be conduits of grace, not cul-de-sacs. This is God's purpose in redeeming Jacob, and it's still His purpose in redeeming us today. It is all a work of God's abundant grace. So, last, let's look at Jacob's measured response. Jacob's measured response. We'll look at Genesis 28, 16-22. We'll catch there. All right, Genesis 28, 16-22. It says this, then God awoke from, or excuse me, then Jacob awoke. It's different. (laughs) Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. 
And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob wakes up from his dream. He has this acute awareness of the presence of God. And notice that nothing about Jacob's circumstances have changed. He is still alone in the desert, humanly speaking. He is still without a home. He is still without a family. He has still got a mark on his head. Nothing has changed for Jacob. And yet, because of an awareness of the Almighty that has been injected into his reality, suddenly everything has changed for Jacob. So Jacob realizes he is not alone. He is not forsaken. And the covenant God of grace who first made himself known to his grandfather Abraham and then to his father Isaac has now drawn near to Jacob. And Jacob's fitting response is, how awesome is this place? Now that may sound like Jacob is excited. That's not quite the feeling Jacob had here. A better translation would be, how dreadful is this place? Jacob wasn't as uh, much excited as he was terrified. This wasn't the reaction of a kid seeing Disney for the first time. It was a reaction of Tokyo natives seeing Godzilla for the first time, right? He is terrified. And this reaction, one of overwhelming fear, is the unanimous response in the Scriptures when the creature meets its creator. So when men and women see God, or even angels for that matter, it doesn't even have to be God, they are filled not with giddy excitement, but holy dread. Because they realize that God standing before them is more awesome, more holy, and more powerful than they ever imagined Him to be. But, while this is terrifying, it is also empowering. Because Jacob realizes that whatever opposes him out there isn't nearly as powerful as the God who is with him and for him right here. And so Jacob changes this pillow to a pillar and he douses it with oil to mark this moment. And you may think especially at first take, that Jacob does this very noble thing here. We may be quick to applaud Jacob, to hold him up as this hero of the faith, this exemplar. I know I did it first. But notice here the juxtaposition between God's language toward Jacob and Jacob's language towards God. God speaks with surety towards Jacob, with promise, and with unreserved generosity. Jacob, on the other hand, speaks conditionally, skeptically, and in a very calculated fashion back to God. So God says, I will to Jacob, I will give you land, I'll give you offspring, I will make you a blessing. Jacob says, if, if God, you will be with me, and if you will keep me in the ways that I go, and you will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, notice that's not what God promised Jacob, right? God has big plans for Jacob, and Jacob is worried about uh, an outfit and a meal, right? He wants, uh, God wants to give Jacob a family, a legacy, and a land, and Jacob is worried about bread and water, the mere uh, necessities of life. And Jacob says, if you will do this for me, God, if you will do what I am asking, then you will be my God, and I'll give you a small portion of everything that I have. God speaks in terms of covenant. Jacob speaks in terms of contract. And this gets to the reason for why I introduced the sermon the way I did. So the reason we recap Jacob's story wasn't just to kind of pass some time. It was to see Jacob's ways of being up to this point in his life. We needed to look at what Robert Mulholland calls his operating systems of the flesh to better understand his response to God in our text. Because the truth is, like it or not, we always carry our past into our present. And so what Jacob had cultivated from all of his years of grasping and usurping and manipulating and deceiving, is a heart that simply can't receive a good and gracious gift. Jacob was so used to taking what he wanted, and mainly taking things that hadn't been given to him, that when God wanted to give Jacob the gift of his presence and his promise, Jacob couldn't receive them in faith. 
And so this isn't quite the radical transformation that it may initially appear to be for Jacob. Now, that being said, this doesn't negate the fact that God can and at times does change us in an instant. Paul, of course, is the shining example of this on the road to Damascus with his transformation, right? Just complete 180. But most of the time, most of the time, God changes us slowly and incrementally as we follow Him season after season over a long obedience in the same direction. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. And so while it's easy to point the finger at Jacob here for his less than ideal response, the truth is, if we're honest, we do the exact same thing. Right? We change in fits and starts, and we show signs of faith and maturity only to shrink back and revert to our old ways of being and doing, resorting like Jacob did to taking and grasping rather than trusting and receiving. But the good news is that even when our response to God's grace is half-hearted and conditional at best, God remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. But that doesn't mean that Jacob's response should be our goal, and it's definitely not the ideal. Commentators point out the difference here between Jacob with here, uh, Jacob here with his conditional skeptical response and his grandfather Abraham's response to God in Genesis 15, chapter 6. So you can flip there if you want to. We'll look at a few verses. Uh, Genesis 15 basically, though, takes the perspective of a fly on the wall uh, with the reader witnessing this conversation between God himself and Abraham. Right, So Abraham is doubting God's promise to give him children, and he and Sarah aren't getting any younger. It would have definitely been a geriatric pregnancy. And as it stands, Eleazar of Damascus is Abraham's heir, one of his servants. Not what Abraham wanted, not what God promised. And God's response to Abraham's doubts is this in Genesis 15, 4-5. God says, This man, referring to Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then God takes Abraham outside. He tells him to look up and he says, Look towards the heavens and number the stars if you're able to. So shall your offspring be. And in verse 6, it simply says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. That's all it took for, for Abraham. Case closed. Abraham has no category in his mind as to how God is going to do this. But he simply believes the God of the Bible is a God who is both willing and able to keep the promises he makes. And that's the kind of faith we are called to follow. So much so that in the New Testament, Paul himself uh, applauds and, and champions Abraham's moment of faith here. And so the question to close is, how do we do this? Right? How do we learn from Jacob's measured response and instead respond to God with unconditional trust as Abraham did? Well, I want to answer that question with a quote as we close. I think it was Kevin, um, one of the first sermons I preached maybe was a little heavy on the quotes. If you think I quote a lot, you should have listened to me two years ago. Um, but this is basically just like citations. <laughs> That's all it was. But he said, hey, I, I wouldn't use a quote unless you can't say it any better. I assure you, I cannot say this any better than Robert, Robert Mulholland does. So um, just to give you a little bit of context, this is Mulholland talking about shifting our relationship from God from the basis of information to formation. So here it is, Mahalan for the win. He says this, The very thought of being conformed, which clearly implies that we must be grasped, controlled, and shaped by someone other than ourselves, confronts our deeply ingrained sense of being. Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Manipulators strongly reject being shaped by God. Information gatherers are structurally closed to being addressed by God. 
we have extreme difficulty in abiding. Just want to encourage you this morning. Extreme difficulty in abiding, in waiting patiently, trustingly, and perseveringly to be shaped by God according to God's agenda. But genuine spiritual formation, you can think sanctification, that's a little more um, of what you understand there. Being conformed reverses our role from being the subject who controls the objects of the world to being the object of the loving purposes of God who seeks to control us for our perfect wholeness. Being formed reverses our habitual expectations for gratification to a posture of patient, open-ended yieldedness. Genuine spiritual formation brings about a fundamental shift from being our own production to being God's creation. And so the answer is simple. It is not easy, but it is simple. We simply let go of control in all the places we don't have it. Last week, Kevin uh, kind of gave us this paradigm of these two circles of life. That's what I'm calling it. I don't know what Tripp calls it, but uh, Paul David Tripp had this idea of these two, two circles, right? One fits inside the other, kind of like the little Russian dolls. Um, and so the inside, there's this circle of responsibility. And then on the outside, there's this circle of concern, right? And I think most of us, the circle of responsibility are things you were responsible for. And I think our problem, at least mine when I first drew the circle or these circles, is that I tend to draw the, the, the inside circle with far too many things in it. It's way too big. And what Mahalan is saying here is to shrink down this circle to only the things that we have been called and tasked by God Himself to do. These are our primary God-given roles in life that no one else can complete for us. Nobody else is going to be your wife's husband. right? No one else is going to be your kid's dad or mom. No one else is going to be that kid's friend at school. And with the rest of it, that is out of our control and not our primary responsibility. We simply let God be God. We release the illusion of control, and that's what it is, an illusion, to things. Uh, we release this illusion that we uh, cling so tightly true because it comforts us. If we can control it, then you know there's less anxiety. Like, what do I have to fear? I am in control of my life. We simply release that, and we trust wholeheartedly in the sovereign work of God who is willing and working to form us more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, just for the insight into the reality of Jacob, God, into Your activity in our lives day by day in the mundane, menial task of, of getting up and going to work once again on a Monday morning. Lord, we do pray that You would help us to become more like Abraham in our response to You and less like Jacob. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us, which is so undeserved and so radically free that You would give us Your Son, Jesus Christ, to bring us back to You. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.